You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. He kept his father's every word, and the law he followed perfectly. So all God's pleasure he secured, all this and more he earned for me. And because his righteous life is mine and all his merits now I own, I am a child of God on high. I am adopted, loved, and known. Those are good words. And they fit beautifully with our passage for this morning as we continue on in our series in the book of Romans. But before we turn our attention pointedly to God's word, let's go to him one more time in prayer and ask him for his help as we do. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. In our hearts, we rejoice over the truths that we have just sung. Christ is our righteousness. He is the forgiveness of our sins. He is our life. We pray that as we look now to your scriptures, that you would write these truths all the more on our hearts. We pray that we would know them and feel them We pray that you would remove every doubt and fear that often keeps us from coming to you. We pray that you would comfort our souls as we consider Christ and that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in him. This is your plan. It is for your glory and honor. It's for our good. May we treasure these things in our hearts today. Give us your grace to that end now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When 1748, William Cudworth published a book entitled Looking to the Cross or The Right Use of Marks and Evidences. Marks and Evidences of a Christian, of being one. In 1850, that book was republished with a preface and notes by Horatius Bonner. Now, Horatius Bonner was a Scottish minister and a hymn writer. If that name is familiar to you, perhaps that's because we sing hymns that he wrote even here at CBC. He wrote, amongst others, I hear the words of love and not what my hands have done. He authored, among other books, God's Way of Peace, a book for the anxious, the anxious of soul before the Lord. Bonner's preface in looking to the cross, begins this way. That there are marks by which a Christian is known to be a Christian is most certain. That there are characteristics which evidence the real state of the heart, both to ourselves and others, is not a thing called in question by any. Where there is living religion in the soul, it will infallibly attest its existence and vitality by marks and evidences. If a man walk in sin, is it not plain that he is not a Christian? If a man follow the world and love its pleasures, is it not plain that he is not a saint? If a man be covetous or unclean or a blasphemer or a talebearer or a drunkard, can he be a Christian? If he be prayerless, praiseless, lifeless, is it not clear that he is also Christless? But while these things are sufficiently plain, it is not the less true that marks and evidences are often sadly misused so as to come between the soul and the Savior, nay, at times, to be almost made a substitute for his cross. How many, for instance, seem to think it wrong to take peace from the gospel until they have ascertained by self-inspection the state of their own feelings in reference to Christ. And what is this but saying that the tidings concerning him are only good tidings to those who are in a certain condition of soul and have previously secured a certain amount of religious feeling? Nay, what is it but saying that it is out of these religious feelings of their own that they are to extract the peace 
which they are seeking. If this be the case, then the grace of Christ falls short of reaching the sinner as he is. It reaches a certain length, but still leaves a space between which the sinner is to get over the best way he can by his prayers and penances and tears. So that the sinner is not fit for Christ, nor Christ for him as he is. And it would be presumption for him to believe the good news the moment he hears it, or to take peace simply from beholding the Lamb of God. Open your Bibles to Romans 8. We will be looking this morning at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Many in the room are familiar with Romans 8. It's often referred to as the great eight with good reason. We go to it often in times when our hearts and our souls feel the most low. When we don't know where else to go, we go to texts like this chapter. Because in the goodness and kindness of God, the words in this chapter are a beautiful and glorious depiction of the sufficiency of Christ to save sinful people. And they are a wonderful depiction of the power of God's grace and of the fact that His love as a Redeemer will not fail us. All of this is for the consolation and the assurance of believers. Let's look now to the text. Listen now as I read, beginning in Romans 8 and verse 1. This is the Word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amen. We thank God for His Word today and every day. My plan this morning is to preach this message in three parts. I'll give them to you one at a time as we make our way through, and hopefully it will be plain enough as we go. We'll begin with part one. The heading for part one is the statement. The statement. The statement, of course, is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a statement that is. We find this, obviously, in the words of Romans 8 and verse 1. This verse is a significant one in the flow of the letter. In chapter 5, Paul had been writing on the assurance of our salvation on the basis of Jesus being our representative. By faith, Christ represents us. We are seen in Him. What's His is ours. What's true of Him is true of us. In chapter 6, Paul makes clear that the doctrines of covenant representation and of imputation of Christ's own righteousness being counted to us, that those doctrines in no way give believers a license to continue to sin. How could that be? Our vital union with Jesus means everything for our sanctification. Romans 6. In chapter 7, Paul had argued that believers have been set free from the law be justified or condemned by it. But then he vindicated the character and the authority and the use of the law. He wrote powerfully on the reality of indwelling sin, even in believers. All of this further proves what he had been writing since the beginning of the letter, that we cannot be justified by our own works, but only by faith in Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. And then there's Romans 8.1. It begins with the words, There is 
therefore. In one sense, this verse serves to draw an inference from everything that Paul had been writing from Romans 1 and verse 16. But it's pointedly an inference from what Paul had been writing in chapter 5, 6, and 7. That believers have been united to Jesus and therefore have died with him. And that this means that believers are dead to sin and dead to the law. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you're thoughtful people. As you read the words on the page, you realize, just as I do, that this implies that there was condemnation for the saints at one point. There was condemnation for the saints in Rome and for all believers when they, when we, were still under the law, under the law to be justified or condemned by it. But now, being in Christ Jesus, that condemnation that did exist, exists no more. A brother in this church texted me yesterday to encourage me. How much condemnation is there for those who are in Christ? I responded, zero. And we rejoiced over that together. To be in Christ Jesus is to be united to him by faith. To trust him. To accept, to receive, to rest upon Christ alone. And to be in Christ means that there is no condemnation. There is no threat that the law poses to you or me any longer. Notice the language that Paul uses. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I draw attention to this because Paul had been writing in the first person for much of chapter 7. He'd been writing of himself. He had done this, as we considered, to demonstrate that even with him as an apostle, the battle against indwelling sin rages on. He had written in the first person to demonstrate that even for him as an apostle, there was nothing good in his flesh. He wrote that way to demonstrate that even for him as an apostle, he didn't understand his own actions and often found himself sinning in ways that grieved him. But here, Paul writes of believers in general. He doesn't write, there is therefore now no condemnation for me. He writes effectively, there is therefore now no condemnation for us. He means to apply the consolation of Christ, that cry out for deliverance that he had made for himself at the end of Romans 7, wretched man that I am who will deliver me, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. He means to apply the consolation of Christ to every believer. It is as if Paul knows our tendency to conclude that the unshakable peace of Christ might apply to an apostle, it might apply to a godlier person, and maybe not to us. Under the law, as a covenant of works, to be kept for righteousness or to be broken unto condemnation. Under the law there, that way, for sinners, there is only condemnation. But under grace, there is none. In Christ, there is none. This is very hard for us to grasp and live in. When it comes to our standing before God, when it comes to our peace with Him, when it comes to our eternal security, the law cannot touch us. Now, I'm going to state that again. When it comes to our standing, our peace, our security, the law has no word to speak. Now, that makes many of us uncomfortable. It sounds dangerous, irreverent maybe, to talk like that. To the legal ear, it sounds that way. But it's not dangerous, and it certainly isn't irreverent. We covered that pretty well in chapter 6 and 7. 
if the statement that when it comes to our standing and our peace and our security, the law cannot touch us, if that makes you in any way, dear saint, uncomfortable, I get it. Because I have the same feelings that you have. I have the same legal ear and the same legal frame that you have. I have realizations, speaking personally, over and over again of how my feeling of peace with God is often so tethered to how I think I'm doing in law-keeping. Or whether I'm feeling the things of God enough. Or whether I'm doing enough or mourning my sin enough. The same is true of my feeling of eternal security. It's tethered to how I'm doing too often. Maybe what I'm describing is not a struggle for you personally. If it isn't, if that is not something that you wrestle with in your soul, praise the Lord for that. Dear saint, if you sit here and you think, man, I don't struggle like that, thank God right now in prayer. None of us will think it's weird that you close your eyes and pray in this moment. Thank him. But the struggle that I am describing, the wrestling and the angst of the soul that I am aiming to depict right now has been something that the saints have known through the centuries. It is a struggle in the souls of many of us here. My hope is that our material today and in the rest of Romans 8 would be a balm for our souls as we consider the love of God for us in Christ. Having been united to Jesus, the condemnation that we were once under is no more. It is precisely this truth that Paul is going to further ground and explain in verses 2-4. to He makes the statement in verse 1. He's going to explain it now in verses 2-4. to So that brings us to part 2, the explanation of the statement. The explanation of the statement. He's going to explain for us why and how there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Though those who are in Christ are sinners. How is this? Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now it's very clear in the context that the law of the Spirit of life is the Gospel. And the law of sin and death is the moral law seen as a covenant of works to be kept for righteousness, to be broken for condemnation. Now, I say that. Some would argue that the law of the Spirit of life is a reference to the believer's sanctification. And that the law of sin and death is a reference to the corruption of the flesh that Paul had written of in Romans 7, 23-25. A problem with that interpretation is that it does not at all square with what Paul had written in Romans 7. There, as we considered in recent weeks, Paul had greatly lamented that he served the law of sin in his flesh. And he wrote of a future deliverance. That deliverance would only come through Christ. It would come when the Lord returns and we're raised incorruptible, imperishable, saved to sin no more. But here in verse 2, Paul asserts that he has been set free from the law of sin and death. In other words, what he's talking about here is different than what he wrote about at the end of Romans 7. And then beginning in verse 3, we're on the right track to see the law of sin and death, to be the moral law of God, because that's clearly what's in view in the beginning of verse 3. For God did what the law couldn't do. To call the moral law the law of sin and death is not wrong. Remember, the law shows sin to be sin and shows it to be sinful beyond measure. The law is a covenant of works, is a death sentence to fallen man. Paul has written this repeatedly in the book of Romans. Then, of course, there's the language of 2 Corinthians 3. 
For the letter, the law, kills, Paul says. But the Spirit gives life. The ministry of the law, carved in letters of stone, was the ministry of death, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. So that's all that's meant here. The law of sin and death. The moral law shows sin to be sin, shows the depth of our corruption. It is a death sentence to fallen people who have not kept its precepts. Remember, Paul had written that believers have been justified from sin through Christ. He had written that believers had died to the law in Christ so that they might belong to him. He had written that believers had been released from the law to be justified or condemned by it. All of this leads us to understand that Paul is writing of the gospel and of the moral law in Romans 8 too. So we could read verses 1 and 2 of Romans 8 this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the gospel has set you free in Christ Jesus from the moral law as a covenant of works. That's the way we should read it. Verses 3 and 4. That interpretation, beloved, is going to fit perfectly with verses 3 and 4. In these verses, Paul continues his explanation of verse 1 by communicating three primary principles pertaining to the law and our salvation. So I'm going to try to kind of subpoint you here. What three things does Paul communicate in verses 3 and 4 pertaining to the law and our salvation? He communicates, one, our fallen condition. Two, the love of God in the Son's incarnation. And three, what the Son's incarnation accomplished. We'll take those one at a time. In verses 3 and 4, we see first our fallen condition. For God has done what the law, here's the key phrase, weakened by the flesh, could not do. I made comments about how it's not wrong to call the law the law of sin and death. And at the same time, do not forget what Paul had written in Romans 7, 1 through 6, Romans 7, 7 to 13 in particular, that there's nothing wrong with the law. There is nothing wrong with the law. It is holy, it is righteous, it is good. The problem is with us, right? It is not that the law cannot save the person who keeps it. It can't. The law absolutely will justify the person who keeps it perfectly. Do this and you will live. True. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. True. The problem is that the corruption of our nature makes this kind of obedience impossible. In our flesh, we can't keep the law. Paul's clear about that. He's been clear about that in the letter, but he reiterates it here. God has saved us, and he's done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. But then he goes on to communicate now the love of God in the Son's incarnation. The love of God in the incarnation of God the Son. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. This is the love of the Godhead. Thanks. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How? That God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. For God so loved, for God in this way loved the world that what? He sent his only son. He gave him so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved us and gave himself for us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've stated this many times over. It bears repeating. Your life 
my life is not the evidence of the love of God for us. Your life, my life, is not the evidence that God is graciously inclined toward us. It is Christ, Christ's life, Christ's coming, Christ's living and dying and rising from the dead. That is the evidence that God loves you and me. Notice that God the Son came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Doctrine matters. Precision is good. We're going to think for just a moment about Jesus and his coming. God the Son is the only person of the Trinity who took upon himself a human nature. God the Son took upon himself a truly human nature. 2,000 years ago. He came in the flesh. He did not merely appear to be human. He was and is a man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. This is important because he did not descend from Adam in terms of ordinary generation. And so, he was not under Adam's covenant. He had no part in Adam's sin, no part in Adam's guilt. He did not inherit Adam's corruption. This is why, for example, the writer of the Hebrews will say that he was like us in every respect, yet without sin. Thus, the precise language of Paul, Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. The language of John. Christ came in the flesh. He came this way, in the flesh, as a man, in order to save men. He cannot save what he does not assume. He became a man to represent men. He became a man to die for men. He became a man to keep the law in the place of men. Sometimes people get it twisted. I mean, brilliant thinkers, theologians will object. It makes no sense for the judge to impute his righteousness to the defendant. To which we say, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that God's righteousness, divine righteousness is communicated to us. We are saying that Christ's righteousness as a human being is counted to us. That matters. He came in the flesh. Continuing on this train of thought, let's now consider what the Son's incarnation accomplished because Paul makes it plain to us our fallen condition. He demonstrates the love of God for us in the Son's incarnation. And then lastly, he makes plain what Jesus accomplished when he came. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus, as you know, beloved, was not punished for his own sin because he didn't have any. He was punished for the sin of his people. We read it earlier from the prophet Isaiah. He suffered as a man in the place of men. He represented us in his suffering. What we should have suffered and endured, he suffered and endured. He was made to be sin for our sake. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned, he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The justice of God is in no way compromised in the salvation of sinners. Why? Because Jesus completely satisfied God's justice. What does this mean? It means that everything in you and everything in me that deserves condemnation has already and was already condemned in our Savior in our place. 
everything in you, everything in me that deserves wrath and condemnation, of which there is a lot, already has been condemned. It happened. It's over. Christ handled it. He took it in our place when he stood in our stead. There is therefore now no condemnation for you or for me because of that reality. That's not all Paul wrote though. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So not only did Jesus come to bear our condemnation, he came to fulfill all of the law's demands so that all of its righteous requirement might be fulfilled in those who are united to Christ. Jesus kept the law in the place of men. He fulfilled all of its commands as a man in the place of men. He died under it to endure its curse in the place of men. Everything that the law could ever require, he did it. As Christ's people are in him, so the full extent of the law is fulfilled in us. The law is upheld in our salvation. You remember the end of Romans 3? Do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. We uphold the law. Exactly. It is upheld this way. Everything that the law demands in terms of punishment for breaking it and obedience to its precepts, everything that the law demands is fulfilled in Christ's people through what Christ accomplished. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So brother, verse 4 is not talking about our obedience that is enabled by the Holy Spirit. My answer to that question is no, it isn't. Verse 4 is not talking about our spirit-wrought obedience. Why? Our imperfect, albeit sincere, obedience could never be equated to the righteousness of the law. Never. Our imperfect, albeit sincere obedience could never equal the righteous requirement of the law. Listen to John Calvin on this verse. They who understand that the renewed by the Spirit of Christ fulfill the law introduce a gloss wholly alien to the meaning of Paul. For the faithful, while they sojourn in this world, never make such a proficiency as that the righteousness of the law becomes in them full or complete. This then, verse 4, must be applied to forgiveness. For when the obedience of Christ is accepted for us, the law is satisfied so that we are counted just. To be clear, we are sanctified. We are being sanctified, and our sanctification is certain because of our vital union with Christ. Amen, someone. But... Our sanctification is far from meeting the righteous standard of God's law on its own merit. Can't be done. It is the work of Christ alone that is our peace. It is not our sanctification. Paul goes on. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Believers are those who walk according to the Spirit. Now, for us, when we read the words, walk according to the Spirit, we tend to immediately jump to moral conduct. It's where we go. Paul is going to spill ink on our conduct in the coming verses. That's happening. It will happen. But that is not what he's writing about here. Consider the statement about believers that we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit in the context of what Paul has written in Romans. Consider. What has he said about Christians? What's he said about the saints? 
He has said that we're dead to sin's guilt and alive to God in Christ, Romans 6.11. He has said that we have died to the law through our union with Christ and now belong to Jesus, Romans 7.4. And so we now serve God in the new way of what? The Spirit, not in the old way of the written code, Romans 7, verse 6. Then there's Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. It would be worth your turning a page or two and looking at these words. It's been a minute since we were in Romans 4. Paul has just articulated the gospel, as we know. And now he's going to appeal to the Old Testament. In particular, he's going to appeal to Abraham. What then, Romans 4.1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Do you see the contrast that's set up there? What did Abraham gain according to the flesh? What did Abraham earn? The contrast is set up between earning something before the Lord, wage, merit, and receiving righteousness by faith via the grace of God. That's the contrast. What did Abraham accomplish according to the flesh? What did Abraham earn? What did Abraham do? As opposed to what did Abraham believe? What did Abraham receive? So, putting all of these things together, as we read in Romans 8.4 that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us through what Christ did, who walk not, who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're on the right track when we understand this. To walk according to the Spirit at its most basic level is to receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. It is to submit, Romans 10.3, to God's righteousness. To walk according to the flesh is to seek to establish your own righteousness. Philippians 3, I've referred to it a number of times in recent weeks. You remember how Paul writes about himself. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh, right, of believers. But then he says, if anybody's got reason for confidence in the flesh, I got more. And then he lists all these things about himself. How he was a Hebrew of Hebrews and effectively a Pharisee of Pharisees and had zeal that was off the charts, all of that. Paul walked in his own understanding. He walked according to the flesh prior to his conversion. He walked in a way where he was striving after uprightness. Morally, he was crushing. But he was walking according to the flesh prior to his conversion. But after his conversion, he says, we put no confidence in that. It's not how we walk anymore. So putting these things together, God has done what the law, weakened by our corruption, couldn't do. God did this by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for our sin, and Christ paid for it. So that the righteous requirement of the law, keeping its precepts and paying its penalty, might be fulfilled in us through Christ. And we are those who walk according to the Spirit, by faith in the Son of God, not those who walk according to the flesh, seeking to establish our own righteousness. Jesus did what the law could not do. The law could not justify those who had broken it. It could justify those who kept it perfectly, but it could do nothing to save those who had broken even one of its commands. Jesus, however, has justified the ungodly, and he has saved miserable offenders. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
part three. This is the application of the statement. So I'm motivated here by the clear aim of Paul in these verses. What is that aim? It's to comfort the saints. It's to assure the saints that we have peace with the Lord. We are not under condemnation anymore. I'm taking my cue from Paul. And I'm motivated here by a tendency to misinterpret verse 4 to be talking about our obedience, not what Christ has done. If we interpret verse 4, be speaking of our living, and do not hear what I'm not saying, we will talk plenty about our living in the coming chapters of Romans, even in the coming verses in Romans 8. But if we understand Romans 8, 1 to 4, to be speaking of our living, we are running running counter to what Paul is doing and what Paul is saying. By the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul intends to comfort the saints. And if we understand them to be speaking about us, they are no longer a comfort. We have gutted them of their ability to console anyone. When it comes to our peace and our consolation, you know and I know that it is always to Christ and only to Him that we must look. And it is always in Christ and only Christ that we must trust. In the introduction, I read that excerpt regarding marks and evidences of a believer. And it needs to be said that fruit in the believer's life, marks and evidences, are good things. Good things. When rightly understood and rightly used, they can bolster our faith and bolster our assurance. Our confession says that. But even when rightly understood and used, fruit evidences, they are not to be trusted in. They are not to be rested on. Even when they are rightly understood and used, they can never be the source of our comfort. They can never be the ground of our peace. They can bolster it. Never the source, never the ground. What Paul is doing in Romans 8, 1-4 is solid rock work. Putting it under our feet. If we're talking about us, beloved, if we're talking about our living, there is all kinds of ground for accusation and condemnation. We just got through Romans 7. We know that's true. This is why It is the great comfort of the saints that we have been made one with Christ, that He is our representative. And we are viewed by the Father exclusively in Him. We are one, think about this, we are one with the one who fulfilled the requirements of the law and satisfied its penalty. That means that you have peace. It means that I do too. Let's identify an issue. So the good news is quite simple, actually. The gospel, deep in such a way that we can plummet forever and never hit the bottom. But it is simple in that it is the message of Christ for us. It is the message of what Christ has done. His perfect righteousness in keeping the law, his death in the place of lawbreakers, his triumphant resurrection as the vindication of what he'd done and the guarantee that all who believe in him will be raised as he was raised. It is simple and wonderful in its simplicity. Our response to the gospel is also simple. Believe, accept, receive, trust, rest on Christ alone. Look away from yourself. Turn from everything that characterizes you to Christ. Simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Book it. Friend, if you sit here today and you're new to Christianity or you're like, what is this all about? Or if you're a young person and you're sitting in this assembly and you're wrestling with whether or not you believe the good news, it is this simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that He did what He said He did. 
and you will be saved. Serious question, though. Can we not be deceived? Shouldn't we proceed with caution? Yes, we may be deceived. There is such a thing as false profession. And yes, it is good to be cautious. It is good to be thoughtful. But it cannot be that we set aside the good news unless we are convinced that everything is in order in our hearts and minds. Because if we set the good news aside until we are convinced that everything is right here, it ceases to be good news. Legitimate question that we need to consider in all of this, just to ground us in these considerations. If it is possible for us to be deceived when it comes to the simple matter of faith in Christ, how much more so when it comes to the very complex matters of evaluating our affections and motivations? Sincere question. If it's possible for us to be deceived when it comes to the simple matter of faith in Christ or not, how much more can we be deceived when we start to wade into the waters of our affections and our motivations and our feelings? If we are not to receive peace from the gospel of Christ unless we are certain that our faith is proper and authentic, how much less should we be at peace regarding receiving rest in the gospel when it comes to our self-examination? If we can't answer the question, do we believe in Christ or not, how in the world will we answer the question, do I feel as I'm supposed to feel? Do I do everything I'm supposed to do? Are my motivations the way they're supposed to be? If it is true, as John Newton said, I am a riddle to myself and a heap of inconsistence, how can we be confident that we have properly evaluated our affections and motivations? How? In other words, all I'm saying, I'm aiming to communicate this in a moment, that self-examination can become a snare and a spiral from which we never escape. This is a congregation of serious-minded Christians. And I'm not saying that to flatter you or the elders or any of us. I'm just making a statement of fact. It's true. If you wanted easy, if you wanted entertaining, if you wanted convenient, if you wanted posh, there are plenty of places you could go and it wouldn't be here. But here you are. As serious-minded believers with the best of motivations, we are prone to overemphasize marks and evidences in our own lives and in the lives of other people. In a way, here's my aim, in a way that robs us of peace and joy and actually is a hindrance to our growth in humility and sanctification. We are prone to overly focus on our affections, our disciplines, our obedience, our sincerity, our fervor, you fill in the blank, and we tend to then read that into every verse of the Bible. What functionally ends up happening is this. The work of Christ is rendered ineffective when it comes to comforting the saints. What can end up happening is that the work of Christ is rendered ineffective when it comes to comforting your soul and my soul in the moments of despair and agony and sin. It is no longer believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and live, it can become believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and having rightly assessed your faith, your motivations, your affections, and your obedience, then you will live. It can become instead of look on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, it can become look on the Lord Jesus Christ and then look at your looking. Make sure that in your looking, you are in a proper state of conviction and penitence and have proper desire to obey. If all that checks out, then you'll be saved. If this is the way that we go, peace and assurance, beloved, are absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. 
It's a hopeless spiral and snare from which we will never escape. Because why? The fear of having a false peace keeps us from ever having a real one. We will forever be imprisoned in our heads and hearts. We will forever look to ourselves rather than looking to the Savior. The same theological instinct that brings a verse like Romans 8.4 back around to our living is in danger of making the following grave errors. I've said enough that I know is a lot. I'm going to read Horatius Bonner again. It's good for you to hear other people's words. He says, in making too much of marks and evidences, the conviction of sin is substituted for the cross of Christ. Repentance comes in the place of His blood. Our faith becomes our Savior instead of the Son of God. Nay, our self-searchings after faith are set in the place of the Savior. The question on which the good tidings are made to turn is not what has Christ done for saving you in dying on the cross, but rather what have you done in the way of believing and repenting and self-examination in order to complete His work and make it available. I'll admit, this is probably one of the more personal comments that I have made in a long time. I admit that in preaching things like this, I have a tendency to fear men that what I'm saying will be misunderstood. That what I am saying would be taken and abused as a license to just not care. Having acknowledged that I feel that, I'm going to continue on. Because I trust we all love one another and know one another, that the motivations here are to preach the gospel. And we care how we live. It matters. Union with Christ is everything for our living. Having acknowledged that, we talk often of how we are always looking outside of ourselves to Christ for our salvation. We look outside of ourselves to save what's wrong in us. This was the cry of the Reformation. Extra nos. It has to be. has to be outside of me. If I look in here, I got nothing. How devastating is it that many Christians think it is wrong to look outward to Jesus before they have looked inward to themselves? Equally devastating is the idea that we will derive comfort from a source other than where we received it originally. As though having received peace from Jesus and only Jesus at the beginning, we will now in the Christian life receive peace by looking to our affections and obedience and prayers and sighs and tears. Beloved, it is the beholding of Jesus Christ only that gives peace. Only. It is seeing and considering Him only that comforts our soul. Here's the thing. You and I, we knew, we knew that that was true the day we trusted him. Did you not? You knew. We didn't know much, but we knew that. We knew that only he could give us peace. And now that we're Christians, do we think that peace could ever come from anywhere else? We say often, Jesus is enough. We don't mean anything sentimental. We mean he is sufficient for forgiveness of sins, though they are many. He is enough for righteousness, though you have none. He is enough for eternal life, though we, as it stands now, are perishing. Nothing in us will ever dispel our doubts and our fears. Only Jesus. But brother, I promise we're concluding. I realize the time. But brother, are we not to expect to bear fruit? Should we not look for it? Amen to both questions. Should we not expect to bear fruit? Absolutely we should. Because we've been united to Christ. 
We've been united to the living vine. We should expect to bear fruit. Should we not look for it? Yes, we should. We should live thoughtful lives. We should observe one another. And we should seek to encourage one another with the fruit we see being produced. And we lovingly admonish one another when we are in danger because we're in sin. Amen to all of that. We should expect fruit. Our union with Christ results in it. And we will know it when we see it. And we should speak about it. Very good and upright question that then comes next. But pastor, brother, what if I'm not seeing fruit? This is the rub. What if I'm not seeing it? That's real. In the life of every believer, there will come seasons when we feel that way. When we observe our lives and we are looking for good and looking for fruit and we're coming up with nothing. What if we are concerned by a lack of fruit? What if we're discouraged by our lack of feeling for the things of God? What if we're troubled by the fact that we aren't repentant enough? What's the remedy? Dear saints, it is most certainly not to take your eyes off of Christ and put them on yourself. to keep ourselves at a distance from the Savior because we feel unworthy will only prevent the cure. Think about it. We believe that only the Lord grants repentance. Amen? Only He does. Only He grants faith. Only He, working in and through us, can produce fruit in us. We believe these things. And so if we are lamenting a lack of repentance or a lack of faith or a lack of fruit, where do we think we will get those things other than from Christ? We often don't go to Him when we're burdened by this stuff. We don't go to Him when we feel grieved by our lack of fruit and our lack of feeling. We don't go because we've assessed ourselves and have found ourselves unworthy, which we are. But you know, dear one, that is what Satan would have you think. That's what the enemy would have you believe. Don't go. Don't go to the Savior. You're not worthy. As for the Savior himself, what does he say? He says, come. He says, come. Come to me, all who are what? Weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is our great high priest. He is like us in every respect. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. So what? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Dear saint, have you ever had a time when you're not in need? I haven't. So metaphorically speaking, we ought to wear the path out to the throne of grace and do it with joy and confidence in spite of the fact that we know we're not deserving of that mercy and that grace. We never could be. Jesus himself is our peace, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2.14. And so, beloved, we look only to him as the ground of our peace and the source of our comfort. And when you have sinned, not once you've gotten over it, when you have sinned, when you are burdened by a lack of love, not once you've worked some up, when you're grieved by a lack of holiness or affection, not once you've fixed it from your perspective, flee to Christ. because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a Savior we have who bids us come, who gives us everything we need. He has already secured our salvation and He will see to it that we will be sanctified and that we will endure to the end. Praise be to His name. Let's pray.